much of the hype in astrobiology, which is uh, another, which is a field which has a lot of hype, as well as unfortunately a field with mixed scientific um, mm-hmm. uh, credentials, I guess, or I don't know how to put it, uh, um, is that we we know so little that that most claims are 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 highly suspect. But but that's okay because it means there's so much to learn. And unlike say quantum gravity, where we may never learn <laughs> what 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 the universe is like at those scales, what's great about uh, about astro- about astronomy and what will eventually be i think interesting about astrobiology is we have all these tools we have tools that are going to allow us to explore not just our solar system but look at extrasolar planets and explore their atmospheres um looking for biomarkers so so the next 20 to 30 years could be replete with data which will change our picture and that makes it exciting Welcome back to part two of this two-part fast-paced episode of Into the Impossible, featuring Lawrence Krauss, discussing his latest book, The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos, and much more. An accomplished theoretical physicist with over 500 publications, prolific popular science writer, outspoken science communicator, and iconoclast, Dr. Krauss has a lot to say about the state of higher education, the pursuit of a theory of everything, and where science can take us. In part two, Lawrence expands on his views regarding the search for life beyond Earth, the nature of consciousness, the risks of AI, and if physics can explain human experience. We also get some recommendations for scientists from the Talmud. If you haven't already, don't forget to listen to part one. If you're hungry for more sincere, in-depth, open dialogue into cutting-edge science and want to know what great minds are thinking, please keep Into the Impossible in your feed by subscribing and following. For some extra credit, head to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. Remember to click the bell to receive alerts on new episodes as they drop and get in on the live chats. If you feel your personal intellectual universe expanding, please remember to add a five-star asterism to ours and pay it forward with a share. We love hearing from you. Please let us know what you think of the show with a review like this one from Audible from DM Branco. This podcast with its questions and deep conversations is a great contribution to helping us become more insightful, open-minded, consciously aware, and fundamentally better human beings. And now let's go beyond the edge of knowledge on Into the Impossible in part two of this episode with Brian Keating and Lawrence Krauss. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Describe this, what happened in 1997, I think it was, and the White House lawn, which is depicted in the movie Contact. Many people think that this is nonsense CGI. No, no, no. Bill Clinton is really there, and he's really saying this discovery, if confirmed, will be the greatest discovery of all time. He was talking about the discovery of, allegedly, microbial life found in the Allen Hills meteorites, which was a project. uh, Originally, there's the ANSMET program that you probably helped uh, participate in at Case Western. It's still alive and kicking. Uh, And they found this meteorite sitting on a piece of uh, ice chunk in Antarctica, where I've been a couple times. You've been there a couple times, too. And when you... The edge, I've been to the South Pole. That's... Yeah, you're in the South Pole. Well, they didn't. South Pole, hoping that they would take me, but they never did. Yeah, well, the meteorite's not found in the South Pole. It's found in the Allen. I know, I know, I know. The Allen. Yeah. So they zoomed in on it, and they. So I want to run this argument by you. You talk about in the book, in the chapter on life, you say, "What is life? Is life elsewhere in the universe?" And hearkening back to that press conference, which, by the way, was the basis of not only a refereed and published paper in science, mm-hmm. uh, but also the subject of the NASA Astrobiology Project led by Dan Golden back in the 19, late 1990s that led to a lot of funding for NASA Astrobiology. Okay, yeah. so that was never retracted. Some good and some bad. Yeah, go on. Yeah, that was never retracted, that paper. It was never officially a mea culpa. Well, I, mean, you know, I think the point is, yeah, that, well, you know, so the point is that, it, it, yeah, I, I think they made a, it's interesting, that wasn't retracted. Uh, the question is the, what the claims they made. If they if they made this, the claim that this might be, then no need to retract it. If they made the claim that it was, then it would be need to be retracted. Just like, uh, get, you're too young again, but you won't remember, you should remember, you probably do, Um my good friend Blas Cabrera, 
who discovered yep, the Valentine's Day event. I have a video Valentine's where I enact the Valentine's Day monopoly. And, yep. and and that paper, I'm sure, hasn't been tracked either because no one, you know, it was an, a, a weird anomalous observation, and it, at the time it looked like it was exactly what was expected if a monopole existed, from, and it wasn't. Yeah. But you know, so sometimes you know there are weird anomalous results. So anyway, I don't, I, you know, there's reasons to retract papers, but if they provo- if a paper provokes things and doesn't make claims that are you know that it, strong claims that are not wrong, and I don't mind if it's you know if it's in. Well, a, it's also, at, I didn't know. I didn't know that they never that they never tracked it. But again, yeah, I didn't read the, the. I never read the original paper. So yeah, the 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 paper is generally regarded as you know drawing incorrect inference. But at the time, it was the best. Obviously, it led to this huge uh, attention it's, and so forth. It's not as bad as but, the paper that suggested uh, phosphorus replaced uh, that arsenic, arsenic replaced phosphorus. Yeah, the DNA, which I right. talk about, and that I don't think I don't know if that paper has ever been retracted. And that's just it's, not it has not been retracted. So this is this is replete. And and actually, I should say that my own experiment, you know, bicep two paper. Was never we never retracted it. We did a follow up observation with Planck. We showed the conclusions were consistent with dust, but we didn't say mea culpa. We shouldn't have claimed the first direct evidence for inflation. So I'm, my hands are no cleaner. As your friend I've Jesus, been a big defender of it, as you know, because they asked me to write the companion piece when it came up, but they never. Yes, I know. You know it it. it uh, it was unlucky, but that's about. Well, my, my claim is that we should we should have a publicity budget for papers in an academic media hype complex that I call it. We should also have a budget for retractions, but let's not go there yeah. right now. I want to talk well, about that Martian meteorite. Let's get back to the publicizing. It's going to universities spend most of their time doing it to try and get money, right. and it's an unfortunate thing, I think. Actually, today they should have an equal. They should have a ten percent reserve in a lockbox for for retractions, Lawrence, because it gives the wrong impression that science is. Yeah. I still get people telling me, Lawrence, oh, you were part. You discovered gravitational waves from inflation. Like today, I get asked about that by scientists. This isn't just by my mother's dry cleaner. I'm talking about something that happens among scientific elites. Anyway, Lawrence, get back to this meteorite, which, by the way, it's all part of saying we don't know and we're we're wrong. And that's all. And and, and you're right. And part of the reason that universities need to do that is they're so loath to say they're wrong about anything nowadays. Anyway, so go on. That's right. So let's talk about meteorites. So first of all, I want to say that if you're listening to this on your, on Lawrence's podcast or, uh, you're finding it somewhere, if you have a .edu email address and you go to briankeating.com slash list, I will send you a chunk of an actual meteorite. And the reason I do that for .edu is because I'm trying to, uh, to have a a connection between all these young people that are in college and, and hopefully influence them to the good to right. understand appreciate the positives as you were pointing out and celebrating rightfully about science but also as Lawrence is saying the cautionary tales when we should have that piece of paper in our pocket that says we're dust this is a piece of space dust anyway Lawrence if I told you that my friend uh, down the hall uh, Shelley Wright or one of her colleagues here at UCSD who's on the NASA panel led by David Spurgle to look into the phenomenon of unidentified aerial phenomena anyway if I told her her colleagues have found a planet Okay, there's a planet out there, right. and it's next to a planet, and that planet has is 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 rotten with life. That planet is just completely overrun with life, and uh, and it's actually this other planet that's neighboring that planet is in the habitable zone of its host star. It's a Type G, you know, subgiant, mm. and it has uh, liquid it has liquid water vapor on its surface. It's had flowing rivers on it. It's had on many different climatary changes. It has carbon dioxide in it, which is a biomarker potentially. So if I told you all that once, and I said that it's been exchanging material as the Earth has, you know, for millions of years. Um, uh, with that life-giving planet, potentially, what would you say the odds are that that neighboring planet also has life? Would you, could you say anything? Not, not, I'm not asking you, don't tell me the exact odds, but would you, would that increase the Bayesian confidence that that neighboring planet has life on it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, okay. I don't know if you're going to get Mars and Earth, uh, but here we go. I mean, yeah. So now yeah, I say yeah. it's Mars and Earth. So the fact that we well, don't see really life... Can I say anything as a, I'm just a dumb experimentalist, okay? Does, don't don't be too harsh on me. But can you say anything? What? No, go ahead. I'm going to bite my tongue. Go on. Okay. Can you say anything about the fecundity arguments that life is abundant as 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 Carl Sagan and Andrean say, if there's no life in the universe, it's an awful waste of space. Well, I've been to Antarctica twice. There's an awful wasted space down there too on one seventh of the Earth's habitable continent. So Lawrence, the non-observation of life on Mars, given it's next to a facund fertile neighbor that's pumping out kids, you know, on a daily basis, can we not say anything about the difficulties in establishing life in the cosmos at large? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, we can try. So first of all, it's extremely difficult to exp- extrapolate from an example, a, a, a single case, right? It, we all know that, okay? Even mathematicians generally need two to, to do an infinite regression. But um, so to to uh, what we what we can say, it seems to me, and I try and say in the book, is that is that because we know that Mars and Earth exchange material. And because Mars appears to early on have been more amenable with the conditions to the life like we know it, that it's not impossible that when you want to look, see what a Martian looks like, look in the mirror, that, that, that life first arose on Mars. But we also know that Mars as a planet had certain features that ours doesn't and evolved in a way that made it inhospitable. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, what will be very important is actual data. I know as an experimentalist, I assume you actually yes. like data. And, I love and data. What are you talking about? Like, like data. Come on. As a, exactly. Well, I'm a theorist who happens to like data. It, it, yes, you do. increasingly rare, but, but I'm an old-fashioned guy. And, and what I would like is data on, on, on either extinct or extant life on Mars, which would give me mm-hmm. some ability to extrapolate. But more interestingly to me, and, and as I describe in the book, is, is, would be data from a system that hasn't been able to exchange material with the Earth, like the oceans in Europa or Enceladus. And if there were discovered to be organisms, microbial organisms in those regions, that would, that would be much more powerful evidence that there could be a second genesis of life even in our solar system, which would have Mm -hmm. profound implications for the abundance of life in the universe. But right now, we know almost nothing because you know of one example of life, which is part of the problem. I wrote a piece, as you know, recently on astrobiology and its problems, and much of the hype in astrobiology, which is uh, another, which is a field which has a lot of hype, as well as unfortunately a field with mixed scientific um, Mm Uh, credentials, I guess, or I don't know how to put it, uh, um, is that we we know so little that that most claims are 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 highly suspect. But but that's okay because it means there's so much to learn. And unlike say quantum gravity, where we may never learn <laughs> what 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 the universe is like at those scales, what's great about uh, about astro- about Astronomy and what will eventually be, I think, interesting about astrobiology is we have all these tools. We have tools that are going to allow us to explore not just our solar system, but look at extrasolar planets and explore their atmospheres, um, looking for biomarkers. So, so the next twenty to thirty years could be replete with data which will change our picture, and that makes it exciting. But we, but, what? What? but we shouldn't pretend we do, we know now when we really don't know almost anything about life, about the life in the universe. Right. One a wonderful aspect of li- of uh, the Edge of Knowledge, your latest um, epic tome, is you, you talk about the Drake equation and you kind of slip it in, um, but I, I was appreciative of it. You basically say it's it's um, how do you describe it? You describe it as sort of like a, a talisman, or you don't oh, even call it an equation. It's a mnemonic. It's a mnemonic. That's right. Yeah. So and I know Frank. I used to know Frank Drake, but it's not an equation. It's just sixty-two yeah. years ago he came up with his eponymous equation, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's used replete. You know, the people, you can buy T-shirts with it. Uh, uh, but I always point out to my students is actually just kind of like Hubble in a sense. Like Hubble, if you look at his 1929 paper, he's got this plot and it's a plot of distance versus velocity. The uh, units of velocity are given as kilometers. Uh, you know, it's kind of un- unbelievable. And this is in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, right? Well, the distance is, is overrated. In, in the first okay. Place. Go on. Well, yes, that's right. But uh, yes. Uh, so so and then but. The idea was was right. He was wrong. The data were inconclusive. They had no error bars on them, Lawrence. Come on. What would you have given me if I submitted to you well, a yeah, lab it was report? Wrong with, by a factor of 10, too. It was wrong by a factor of at least seven. There are multiple yeah. popular. Anyway, but, but the idea is right. So how do you handle that as a, as a theory? That, that there may be people who have the right ideas um, or maybe the wrong data or something like that, but still lead to – I mean, where else does that happen? Where else do you make like I accidentally made a car I mean, or I accidentally made a transistor? That doesn't happen. There's serendipitous discoveries, penicillin or whatever, but it's very yeah, different from an engineering true. solution. So how, how does that occur? I mean, how does the human mind – we're going to pivot to consciousness next, and then we're going to get to some audience questions, and then we're going to finish up with my existential uh, oh, final great. question. Okay, I'm glad yeah, we, yeah, we have, we thought that yeah, I we have a, wonderful. Yeah, if you have time, we'll, we'll keep going. 
Okay, good. No, 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 no. I pushed it off. I, I told my students, you know, office hours are canceled. You're on your own for the for the I'm midterm. And Lawrence. Priorities. That's good. <laughs> so um, is that unique to the human mind? Uh, the reason I'm getting to this, when we talk about consciousness, you have a quote, you have two quotes that I love, and I'm going to retweet them. I'm not going to give you credit because you didn't say it, but but these two people said it. You said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And going back to artificial intelligence, you remember what Einstein said was his happiest thought, Lawrence? Well, I, rem- I the one that I'm thinking about was when it was. Well, I know the one that gave him palpitations was when it was when he discovered that the perihelion of Mercury agreed with his calculations, which is, <laughs> which to me is really important because people think, you know, it was this act of magic of work sitting in his room alone imagining what the world looked like. He was driven by data. Yes. But anyway. Yes. So his happy, I'm going to give you a mnemonic. I can never pronounce it right. Uh, uh, that and, and, co, and coax or coax, I always get wrong because I'm, I'm an experimentalist. Okay, here's a, here's a hint. Here's a hint. You see that? Yeah. You see what just happened to him? What happened to Einstein there? <laughs> what happened to him here? He free he fell. What? He, he, he went free into fell. free fall. So his happiest thought when he realized that free fall was the same as weightlessness. So can I ask you, Lawrence, in the future, will this device or something like it, this this device that we're communicating on, can it A, have a happiest thought and B, can it have a perception at the edge of knowledge of what it's like to free fall if it's bound up in a quantum Lagrange system? Well, no. In fact, actually, if 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 you read my book carefully, you'll discover that um, – uh, I I talk about that, and I'm again, and these are not due to me, but um, yeah, I think it's incredibly important, and I think I, I find it plausible, and I think that's all we, as I say, that's all we can do with cosmo- consciousness right now, but highly plausible that the no, that an integral part of the development of the evolutionary development of consciousness is is uh, feelings. Is being able is the time is is a necessity for homeostasis, which means you have to have sensors that probe to see how the body is behaving, and that goes all the way back to to bacteria, and ultimately being able to do that in a more refined sense required a central processing system, and and it has been said by uh, by at least one well-known neuroscientist and maybe more that if a system doesn't have basically a body that can mm-hmm. sense the outside environment. And, and, and feedback on, on itself, that it can never really be conscious. That, that's a central part of the development of consciousness. And it sounds and, and sorry to interrupt you, Lauren, sorry to interrupt you, but your good friend Noam Chomsky seems to have, you know, this notion of a generative grammar, which in part, when I talked to him on my podcast, he said it was very unlikely that you could develop a language system without a body, without an embodiment. So uh, is that is that do you share those same skepticism? Well, I mean, I share a lot with Noam, not everything, but I, I certainly I I. I, he was like many things he's taught me a lot or at least caused Mm -hmm. me to think about the world differently than I did before and one of his statements that really and I I, I forget if I talked about it in 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 that conscious chapter is that language which is for many people synonymous with consciousness Mm. Noam has argued that language isn't for communication at all it's for it's 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 for internal it's 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 an internal process and it's a central Mm. part of our cognitive being but but communication was really secondary that language isn't developed for communication and that's amazing when i first when i first heard him say that it really took me back um and but it sounds again it seems plausible we, mm-hmm. i don't know and and this is the hard part this is why i said in the book that studying consciousness is like studying quantum gravity or studying the universe because we're stuck in our universe so it's pretty hard to get outside of it just like we're stuck in our heads and it's pretty hard to get out of it at the same time we can't probe quantum gravity because we don't have those damn experimental tools that and and you can never at least at this point know what i'm thinking other than me telling you which is a lie you know which is a lie that my myself has created as not sort of this picture of 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 the universe that i that i have that's right Uh, so it's not me lying directly but uh, so i think that but one thing that i have and maybe you have the same is that i cannot imagine thinking of something without language i mean i think about things pictorially but it's so integrated in my own mind to that internal dialogue that i'm having with myself that right. i don't think i can ever get around language now it's chicken and egg is right. is that just because i learned language that i use it or is it because it's an egg and when it's how do you know it's hard to know but 
as I said, because I'm such an admirer of experimentalists, quoting another statement of our mutual uh, hero, I suppose, or one of the, certainly mine, Richard Feynman, who I wrote yeah, a book about, as you know, is, is he said, you can build no, nothing, knows nothing. Or, uh, yeah. you know, uh, well, actually, what he really said was, if you can't build it, you can't understand it. He once told me, if you can, he can't build anything, knows nothing. But I've never seen it written down, but he did tell me that. His but, famous statement on the chalkboard of his office when he died, if, which if was later occupied. It, you don't understand it. That's the statement That's right. that, that the world knows, he said, that I know the statement he told me. But anyway, um, yes. but if you can't build it, you don't understand it. So yes. I'm reasonably, just as reasonably convinced that the only way we'll understand understand consciousness is if we can build it and have that AI that everyone is so afraid of. Um, but as you just pointed out, we may not be able to do it in the directions people are taking because it's, as Noam has pointed out, among others, chat GPT and everything else, as much as it impresses people, is not, is not thinking, is not understanding the world. He's just, he's just classifying information and, and data. Right, it's autocomplete. It's an autocomplete. And that's great. I, I, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It can do that, but, but it may need a body and it may need many more things. It's a wonderful, that's why we may need systems that are much more like the systems that, Another person who I'm happy to say wrote something nice about my book, uh, which is unfortunately not the printed version of the U.S. one, but Ian McEwen, who's a friend of mine and a wonderful author, wrote a, uh, um, wrote a, a, a great book, and it was called uh, what, uh, something like me. What was it called? Um, it was about an it was about a robot, an AI, um, human like me, or something. Yeah, yeah I, and I'm tempted mm-hmm. to Google it while I'm talking to you, but go on. No, it's okay. Uh, so what? Yeah, so I, I agree. Actually, again, quoting my late father, you know, machines who used to like say, me. "Well, machines like me. ah." Okay, good. Very good. So uh, my late father used to say, yes, we can get a computer to act like us when we make it feel pain, because I think a lot of uh, is pain aversion. We've shown from psychological experiments uh, to whatever extent they pass the replication uh, crisis uh, hypothesis that past guest uh, Guido Imbens and I have spoken about uh, in, in earlier this year. But the, the point being that we feel pain. Like when I'm in a simulator, like learning how to fly a plane, I've often thought that it would be great if there was a little electrode that would, like, shock me because it's really fun to, like, fly into a bridge on a simulator, but I wouldn't try that with my kids screaming in the back, right? So, But if there's some disincentive, you blow, their, you blow a transistor inside the computer or you do something in it to uh, have it have not only the approbation of, you know, uh, uh, of its user, which says, no, that was a stupid prompt or that was a stupid response to a brilliant prompt by me, chat GPT. Instead, you, you actually penalize it you know, and punish it, perhaps that's a way forward to the truth. But let me get you to react to the great Erwin Schrodinger, who said the following, consciousness is a singular of which the plural is unknown. You talk about in this book, uh, some discussion by David Chalmers, who's past guest on this podcast, uh, where I talked to David and I said to him, you know, he's from Australia. And I said, David, look, if I don't ask you to define the hard problem of consciousness, it's like I'm in- interviewing ACDC and I don't ask them to play back in black. I said, we got to do it. OK, buddy. So he did it. And, and But I came away feeling like the same essay that was written the year I was born, I think 1971, by Thomas Nagel. What is it like to be a bat? Conclusion? I don't have any freaking clue. So yeah, yeah, isn't this hopeless? Isn't, isn't Schrodinger's interpretation to be hopeless? And furthermore, what if life, as you say – it takes N of two for a mathematician. What if life is only on this planet? Can we ever discuss what is life and what is consciousness? Two seminal questions of this book, The Edge of Knowledge. Well, look, we don't, again, the answer is we don't know, but we can try and, and that's wonderful. And, but, but we can ask the question, we can try and understand exactly what it is we don't know and mm. try, and that'll help guide us to try and get the answers. And that's what I, that's why I frame those questions and talk about it in each chapter. I think the, the life question is so much easier. The consciousness one, I'm, I'm not optimistic about that because I think it's so, it's such a hard, it is such a hard problem, but not in the sense of traumas necessarily, but, but, the, but there is a hard, you know, it will actually Noam said to me, I, I don't know if it was in a podcast, but, um, that it, you know, we may just give up trying to have this, you know, like Maxwell had this picture of Maxwell's equations, and it was with, and he, and if you read pulleys, papers, gears, pulleys and wheels, and all this stuff, because he needed this mechanistic picture. We dispense with that now. We just have the equations, and it could be in the end we dispense with this notion. Well, we have to have a picture of how consciousness emerges. Maybe we'll have at some level a mathematical description or something like it, and we'll dispense with this quaint notion that you have to understand it by being able to compare it to things you 
already know. And it was it was it was once again Feynman. Um, mm-hmm. and it was it was Coleman who reminded me of this in this great interview, you know, that he did um, where someone asked him to explain the force between, you know, magnets like the, the compared to the force between, you know, you're sitting Gravity. on this chair and he said, you've got it exactly wrong because. You, the force sitting on the chair is not fundamental. It's, it comes, it, it arises because of the same kind of forces between magnets. So asking me to explain the force between magnets in terms of you sitting on this chair is exactly ass backwards. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that may be the case, you know. It, yeah, you know. exactly. So, Lawrence, we have a bunch of uh, questions from the audience, and then I'm oh. going to pivot to a few questions of my own. Uh, first of all, I, I've been told as a podcaster one should at, at times – ask the author and the guest if there's anything that I have not covered and you would like me to cover in particular, Lawrence. Well, since I, I don't go on your program or generally any pro well, sometimes I do, but generally I don't go on any program with an agenda. And to try and be reasonably entertaining and informative. So, um, no, there are many questions like, I, uh, there are many, no, there's nothing you've, you you know, I, I think we, you know, in a limited amount of time, it would be nice to spend more time on on the things that we you know, time and space and matter, the physics. We'll do that. We'll do that this fall in San Diego. If yeah, not I'm before. hoping we'll do that in, in San Diego. And and, and I should point out, you have many other... interesting ideas, and it's all a little time that we should... I know, yeah. But that's and delightful. Dogs are outside trying to come in, but anyway, you 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 banish them out of my room. They hate you. That's right. Anyway, well, you know, it's 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 not worse than what I did to Gnome. I actually like almost yelled at Gnome when he was on three years ago. I could not hear my eardrums had exploded after his dog went nuts in the yeah, in the room that he was. Dog. Anyway, he'll hopefully have forbearance and maybe he'll come back on the show if I uh, if he's forgotten. You know, my my temeritous uh, you know kind of hosting abilities. I'm gonna, which actually, not, I'm going to be the first. Um, I was going to say the first line, but I mean, in a sense, this is, well, anyway, the first event, public event that I'm going to be doing on the book um, is, is with Noam in, in okay. England. Uh, uh, yeah. where, and it's going to be a strange experience because it, it, at least as it's planned, he's going to be my interlocutor. He's going to be asking me questions. At least that's what the plan is. And I've wow. done many things with Noam where it's worked the other way around. So it'll yeah. be intriguing to me to see. But if it doesn't yeah. work out that way, that's fine. Anyway, no, it's great to be uh, getting back to live events and um, uh, well, we'll it won't be live online. I won't be in, I won't actually be physically in London. Ah, so, okay, how to academy, right. which I've done live many times, but has now moved mostly online. I will, but be you doing are doing an event in Vancouver, right? I'm doing in Vancouver, and I'm actually doing that'll be the probably through my foundation. It, uh, the only events I do live in North America are worked through my foundation. In fact, if we if we do one together in San Diego, it'll be that way as well. But in England, yeah. I'm actually doing two. Uh, at least two live event public events. Well, one is the Hay Festival for uh, mm-hmm. a, a festival, and there'll be a live event in in London with Richard Dawkins and a few others, and so that'll be nice. But I generally do those only outside of North America. Anyway, yeah. All right, great. So uh, let's pivot to some questions from my audience here, of which there are many. And the first one has to do with consciousness. Chris from do, Felice. Me. I'm just going to see if one of my dogs wants to come in. The one who doesn't. Talk. Okay. Levy. Levy only. Only uh, tribes of Israel can be admitted into the podcast. Yeah, 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 exactly. You should be happy to have Levi come in but, or Levy, but he's downstairs <laughs> barking for dinner, I think. Well, go on. All right. Okay. So Felice Super, which, uh, you know, is a name I chose for one of my kids, but was rejected by my wife. Yeah, he or she asked, what are your thoughts on qualia, namely the subjective conscious experience of the world? We kind of touched upon this, but when you experience the color red, or I guess you don't because you're colorblind, or maybe you don't, uh, specifically, do you believe it's possible for physics alone to explain qualia? No, I mean, no, I, I no, I, I think, you know, physics is a necessary part of uh, to explain chemistry and chemistry is necessary for biology. But I think the the human experience is it's it just like, you know, it, it, so is physics alone going to explain love? Well, at some very basic level in terms of understanding the neuro, the, the neurochemical processes that are electric, that are largely electronic in the brain. Yeah, you can say it's physics, but to understand the deep phenomena it's not going to be very much help um mm-hmm. uh, but qualia is exactly that that problem of consciousness that 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 your subjective experience of the world which we all wonder does everyone see the same red as we do when we see red although as i say i'm colorblind but but um but and in fact 
It is an eye-opening experience that those of you who are not colorblind should have, because yeah. this is one area where you can experience it. You can go look at books where they show the picture as seen by a person who has, isn't colorblind and the same picture as seen by someone who is. And when my friends have seen such things, they, they're shocked, because me, they look identical, and they are just shocked about it. And so it's, it is one example where you can get in the head of someone else. Um, but that, that, um, that, that, your subjective experience and to realize is, is, is the hard part is why, as I used to, I, I forget if I said in the book, but I certainly said it. And people always think I'm joking when I'm on stage. Maybe when I've been on stage with Richard Dawkins, I always say I'm a physicist because it's so easy and it's so easy compared to, you know, like neuroscience is so hard because it's a, it's a much harder problem. But that's right. But what I, I talk about in, in that chapter, which is I, to me fascinating is one of the things that some neuroscientists have discovered is how we even fool ourselves about our consciousness. We make up stories about what we think we're seeing or feeling and why we're doing it that are that we can prove our 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 fallacies and that and the split bang experiments of Gizanagan and others who uh, uh, have shown that you know it's really amusing to see how people will rationalize why they're doing what they're doing fully thinking that's the reason why they're doing it and and so it it's very humbling because it it makes you realize that you know uh, uh, well as 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 Hume I think said you know reason is a slave of passion and it certainly seems to be. Yeah, as Einstein said, he's not sure about the uh, universe being infinite, but human stupidity. And perhaps that means bias. You know, we have a bias towards uh, our own subjective experiences. And so, therefore, qualia is uh, impossible. I just hate personally, you know, when you start off talking about – and I, I brought this up with Carl Zimmer when he was on to discuss, discuss Life's Edge. I actually got him on the podcast because of an intemperate, you know, snarky tweet where he he tweeted out like – you know, we don't, we can't even define life or consciousness. Can you imagine if astronomers couldn't define what a planet is? And, I, and I'm glad for you to see that, that you believe Pluto is a planet as I do. Uh, Neil can go, you know, where on that front, but, well, uh, know, but we it, love you. I'll have to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you can't, it also remind me of, of one of my favorite quotes from, from, um, Charles Darwin. You probably know this quote at the end of, uh, of, uh, uh of his famous book. He talks about how evolution doesn't relate to the origin of life. And it doesn't answer the question of life. He says Correct. that. He said, look, and he says despairingly, we'll, we'll no sooner know the nature of the origin of life than we would the origin of matter. Matter. And, 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 you know, and, and so I, I find that very amusing. But okay. I like that. Yeah. You talk about that in this book, The Origin of Matter. And yeah, I love these, these, these you know, kind of uh, bloopers from, from the past and science. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's too bad because, you know, Darwin could have had a good career if he, if he didn't yeah, say he, that, you know, Lawrence. If there if there been if there been social media, they would have made fun of them, you know. And they, anyway, so. same with Maxwell, right? Okay, no, so well, let's Newton go back to some... a, Newton would have never made it out of uh, an insane asylum. So it's really... oh yeah, he would have been uh, canceled many times yeah. over. Okay, well, canceled, he uh, put a, put away. Yeah. Okay, anyway. so here's a question that you can answer uh, with uh, one sentence, probably. But VLDTZ or VDLZT asked, "What are your thoughts on the logical universe, grand unified theory?" And it's okay to say I have none. On the logical universe, grand unified theory, I I've don't never heard of it. Know what that is? So, so okay, I, let's I know move what on. Grand unified theories are. I don't know. So my my answer is yeah. I don't have any thoughts on it because I don't know what it is. Um, but I are suspect. You? But mm -hmm. I suspect the fact that I don't know what it is makes me strongly suspicious of whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. Uh, user1990 says, is fusion power achievable or just pseudoscience? Well, we should say it is achievable, but is it practical? And I want to layer onto that. What if chat GPT you know, gets a hold of fusion reactors? I mean, are you worried about the potential for some form of danger to come from AI and nuclear fusion in particular or fission? Well, even? look, let me answer the second question first. Um, um, uh, I was, as you know, for a dozen years, the head of the board of sponsors of the Bolton Atomic Scientists and, and participated and unveiled the Doomsday Clock every year, and yep. um, which was a great honor, uh, followed in the footsteps of actually Oppenheimer and Einstein, who were the first ones to lead that organization. But um, uh, um, one of the things we were, and I'm still concerned about, is if you ask me about the dangers of AI, or at least... Uh, machine learning control is the control of nuclear weapons. It already is a hair trigger. And be, oh, precisely because of this ridiculous fact that 
our nuclear weapons are, are remain on hair trigger in spite of every single president, including the Democratic presidents, who've all said they would change that and, and get them mm-hmm. and, 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 and take them off launch on warning status. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they haven't. And, and therefore, as you anyone, in fact, um, what's his name? Who, oh, great. Daniel Ellsberg. Um, Ellsberg. Who, 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 he wrote a great book, which is terrifying. Um, as did a few other people. Uh, Command and Control is another great book, uh, talking about all the near misses where 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 we've almost had Armageddon because we've come so close to launching on warning, and so right. one can imagine um, a machine uh, a machine learning algorithm. And now, having said that, it could be that the machine learning algorithm is better than than people at, at judging whether to launch on warning or not. So who am I to say? But it is. Uh, it is if you're a human being, and most of us are. I know some who aren't, but if you're a human being, um, most people kind of intuitively feel that at least there should be some human making that decision. Perhaps not least because the, ultimately it'll be humanity that'll be the, suffering for it. But That's it, right. but, but it is an issue. It is an issue. H- however, as fusion is concerned, to get to your listener's question, um, yeah. Well, the answer we used to say. That fusion is very promising. It's what Frank Wilczek used to say about string theory. It's very promising, and it keeps promising and promising. But um, <laughs> uh, um, the the uh, it used to be we all say the twenty five years in the future, and that's a time invariant statement. And and, and uh, it's always been twenty five years in the future. It'll always be twenty five years in the future. I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't see it as being. Um, Playing a key practical role in affecting our uh, the uh, uh, human energy production in the in the foreseeable future, um, by foreseeable in the near term future in a time scale which is relevant to say address climate change. It is also worth pointing out the lie that was propagated by the of course by the false media, <laughs> but by <laughs> all media and by the organization, the Department of Energy itself, which announced it mm-hmm. when when yeah. when when, Los, when um, Livermore Labs achieved what was a key goal, which is finally with their laser system, at least producing more energy on the the pellet, the pellet, the pellet not gonna not the total laser, right? Yeah. So, so more energy came out of the pellet that was in, than was in, that was received by that pellet. First of all, that was not in any way a practical system. Secondly, it wasn't designed for energy yeah. production in the first place. It was designed to be able to test nuclear weapons. But there are there is a technology in the Tokamak in, in France, the ITER system. I suspect will get that breakthrough. But it's a ten billion dollar system that you know it's so it's such centralized technology that it I do think it will it will be able to produce a fusion reactor potentially even in my own lifetime at some level. But will that is that going to be a game changer? No, not in the near term, and specifically because the the, the technological requirements are are so great. Now, you know, experimentalists are smart people, and maybe they'll change that. But I suspect we'll need to rely on other things well before that. Yeah, I agree. Okay, next question um, uh, is from HH, listener HH. What can we do about Michio Kaku? He's clearly out of control. Michio, I shouldn't say what I call him, and not on the air anyway. Okay. Okay. Next question. Um, what do we do about um, him? I suppose yeah, you... You know, you can do like you can do to me or you can do to anyone else. You can just choose to not listen if you don't want to. That's the great thing. So I'm I'm fully uh, I'm fully in favor of people being able to spout nonsense. Um, And that's the great part of free speech, because you're free to if you think they're spouting nonsense, explain why. Um, mm-hmm. And I've done it on stage with Michel. It was a charming man, by the way. Yeah, um, oh, he is. Yeah, but but uh, but I do think he spots nonsense a lot of the time, and and it is unfortunate that people, you know, I can say, and I've I've said this before a long time ago. I mean, that's the problem: the responsibility of a scientist, and the responsibility of a scientist who has some public platform, um, is great mm-hmm. because it's okay to mislead. But not to lo- knowingly mislead. We all mislead unintentionally, and I first realized that when I wrote my first book again when you were a baby. Um, yeah. Uh, and I got people right back to, I love this book because I understood, they explained this, this, and this, and I knew it never. I didn't. I didn't have to touch any of those things. But then I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is motivating that person to get excited, and that's fine. But we shouldn't knowingly mislead. And I and I've and I've on stage 
hit Michel because I believe sometimes he knowingly misleads and mm-hmm. and has misleaded and 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 that's uh, that's unfortunate. He says what people want to hear, and the intention is good because he's try- his intention is to try and get people excited by by science, and I understand that, but I still don't think that gives us license to to go. And we all tend to do it right, go beyond. It's really interesting. It's really hard when you're talking to journalists and they want to hear something to say, nah, you know, it's not the case or it's we think maybe, but it's not. They all want to hear absolutely. They don't like to hear perhaps or with this level of uncertainty because it's not something a journalist like to hear. And so right. scientists are often say things they really shouldn't because, you know, they really want to please the person that they're talking yeah. to. Unlike me, oh, who has right. no desire to please you whatsoever. <laughs> well, I want to I want to quote from a book that was written when you were a baby uh, called the Torah, the Old Testament. It oh, says yeah, "Thou when I was young. Yeah. OK. It says yeah. thou shalt not put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. And then it ends because I am the Lord, your God. Now, Lawrence, you and I study Talmud frequently. Uh, whenever I get you on the show, I can't resist. I love talking Talmud. You would have been what's called a Talmud Hachem, uh, like Einstein would have been reputedly by the Gadol Hador, the, the leader of the generation of his time, said that Einstein should have been a Talmud. Anyway, you could have had a good career, Lawrence. But anyway, I know, that I know. statement – the statement, I am God, is very interesting because it's yeah, really added. I mean, the first half of the statement was good. It was the second half that seemed... That seemed well, let me explain why. The reason that it says that, it also says it many other times. It says it uh, in another instance. It says, uh, when you see your enemy and his donkey is overburdened, help him out because I am the Lord your God. Now, that sounds stupid, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, but well, the, the it's something that you is, could... Is, is you just use reason. I think if you're placed, I'm the Lord your God, with reason, which is the right thing to do, then I think you come to the same conclusions. But go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. But, but, but not, not exactly. Okay, yeah, I know. I know. It's fun okay. to do this. It's, our banter is you know, legendary. When we go on tour this fall, it's going to okay. be really fun. Okay. But the reason that it says that is because but for that statement... There's no way a blind man would know you put a stumbling block in front of him. In other words, it's making a claim that you could do something like hate your neighbor in your heart, which is another commandment. How would I know that you hate me in your heart? Yeah, yeah, seriously yeah. hate me Only because you. I have. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, because. <laughs> but no, no, no. But the point is you could get away with these things. And, and the point is what you just said about Michio and others is, I think, ap- apropos of that statement. In other words, you should not knowingly mislead the public because the public doesn't know. So replace God with science. Yeah. yeah, I could just say that I think it's reason. protons are little pink elephants. It's amazing. And if I said it, people would, you know, at some level, you'll sell a lot of books, right? You'll sell yeah. some books, but uh, and you and can't be falsified, that, right? Them, they do what you want. And that would really sell books. OK, but go on. Right. Uh, so anyway, that's the point. I think that's buttressing yet again the book, the Torah, that you are just obviously so committed to since you wrote the greatest story ever told so far. Oh, I did. All right. Yeah. Okay. It, was, you know, it was the greatest story. The Torah was up there, but mine was <laughs> yeah. okay. All right, Lawrence, we've reached the end of the regularly scheduled broadcast, but I do encourage you to answer one final question. We started the show with Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous dictum. Yeah. Followed by a live magic show that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Arthur said many things. He also said for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And lastly, he said uh, the only way to know the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible. That's the name of my podcast. I asked you that question last time. I've, ans- I've started a new tradition, Lauren, since you were on last year, and that's to ask a following statement of good old Sir Arthur. The following statement I want your reaction to. He said – when a distinguished but elderly scientist, now I'm not calling you elderly, I know you're retired, but I'm not calling you elderly. He said, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says something is impossible, says something is possible, he is very likely right. When he says something is impossible, he is very likely wrong. Lawrence, I want to ask you, what have you been wrong about? I mean, it's hard for me to there are a multitude of things every day that I'm wrong about. Seriously, I, I, I was. I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you two things. One that's sort of more physics wide, and one that's related to, yeah, um, to to someone you spending time with. I guess um, the physics one was is I when I was a, a junior faculty member at Yale, a distinguished colleague of mine in astronomy, a very distinguished astronomer, said we would never be able to measure the fundamental constants of 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 uh, of the universe like the hubble constant and, and things like that because because astrophysics would always intervene every time someone would make a 
statement about omega, the density of the universe, and it would always show be wrong because there, you'd find out that there were loopholes for it, and 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 it seemed to be the case, okay, and and he would and and that and so I you know because he was wise and I thought well okay I I learned to be of course skeptical and I still remain skeptical when people tell me that you know there's some fundamental contradiction in the Hubble constant is measured by the CMB versus supernova and somehow that means crazy things. Well, I generally, my general feeling is that experiments tend to be wrong a lot of the time. Um, and you have to be careful. Not as much as theorists. Yeah, yeah as much I, as I, theorists. Know, I know, but exactly. And, uh, but, but anyway, so I think that that, you know, I certainly changed my mind about that with the, with the, I think many of us, and I'd run a meeting at Yale. I taught there about the mm-hmm. cosmic microwave background in 89 or just before, Kobe, no, yeah. before Kobe, maybe sometime around then. Um, yeah. And and it just seemed impossible that we'd ever be able to measure the fundamental microwave background properties of dust and other things. We're just getting in the way. It was beautiful. If you could. That would never happen. Dust would never mess up a CMB experiment, and, Lawrence. And, and, and this is it's a fascinating bit of sociology, if you don't mind me taking a minute of yeah, go science in your own field, which you may have talked about. But. It's hard for people to appreciate this. So the Kobe satellite suddenly, for the first time, was able to show amazingly that there were primordial fluctuations that weren't that you could disentangle from from our galaxy. And what what is what is so remarkable about that is within within months, of course, it was realized that t- terrestrial experiments had already been able to see that uh, much of that stuff, mm-hmm. but it always assumed. Mm-hmm. That the noise was in the background, you know, because they couldn't control it in the same way that a satellite could, or you know, Sorry. above the atmosphere. And they'd assumed that they weren't seeing it. But within, you know, boom, 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 all these other experiments started being able to see it because it was assumed that you'd never be able to measure these fun- this fundamental st- thing. And that was a real... That was it's like real. the Bannister effect. Yeah, the Bannister yeah, yeah. effect when Roger Bannister beat yeah. the four-minute mile. Yeah, no, no, episode was, yeah, everybody yeah, does it. I was, I was wrong about that in the sense that I think I assumed that... And, and in fact, I assumed... I've always underestimated. Well, no, I haven't always, but I've I've often under I've learned not to underestimate the tenacity and ingenuity of it, of, it, of many experimental physicists. I kind of thought gravitational waves. Oh, it's fine that they're wasting thirty years of their life. Friends of mine working on it. Um, you know, it's great, but yeah, come on, they're not going to be able to do it. And of course, they did. So I've often underestimated what experimentalists could do. And I think it's really important. We talk about quantum computers or other things or even fusion to realize that, you know, it's fine to, to look at all the problems, but, you know, but humans are really ingenious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, and then more personal version of it is, is, you know, we, you talked about Jordan Peterson and I, I have to admit, I largely dismissed him as an intellectual, or at least as a person worth talking to uh, before I had my first chat with him on his podcast where I learned that he was actually interested in learning about things and that, you know, and he still says things I vastly disagree with every now and then, but, but but anyone who's at least interested in asking questions and learning is someone I have an innate respect for at some level, regardless of whether I agree with them or disagree with them. I think, I mean, you know, you talked about Trump. I mean, I have no respect for the man for many reasons, but one is it's clear he has no interest in learning about anything. Yeah, the curiosity factor, I think. Yeah, yeah Jordan, uh, you know, I was uh, a little nervous to go on his podcast and uh, and I was warned by people, you know, your fellow countryman, Gad Sad, who I know you know and love and yeah. we, we all love uh, Gad. But, um, you know, be careful because he's going to talk a lot and he's going to, you know, kind of just don't let him monopolize the conversation. And I didn't uh-huh. find that at all. You know, when, when I was on the conversation, he I spoke three quarters. Of, in fact, so much so, Lawrence. That I was planning to have him on my podcast, and then I said, "Well, maybe it'd be better because he has, you know, these six K cameras, and he has a crew flying into San Diego. Maybe I'll just ask him some questions as if he's on my podcast, and then I don't need to do a podcast. I'll just chop it up and and I found he was he was just asking me too much about about dust, about the properties of the electromagnetic radiation, about the Planck length, and I was like, "Oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to ask him questions to make a fake podcast." Anyway, he agreed to come on the show okay. as you have your fellow Canadian was with me it was just something in his house so but you know yeah, but yours has a million views and I, I, you have a million just, views on that yeah yeah no it's true but I, I i i don't and many people condemn me for this but i don't try and time who's talking if it's an interesting conversation that's all that I, I learned that from past guest uh, neil degrasse tyson who right 
before he called right after he called me a racist or he said i'm going to play the race card on you because i said you know how did you get to be such a good you know conversationalist that you you plan on is it something that you've worked on or you know were you born with it and he said you wouldn't ask a white person you know why they're such a good and i was like I just asked you if you worked on it, and he said, "No, I actually work very hard on it. I time the guest of my uh, my host, and I see how many weeks." I've known Neil since since he before he was Neil. Yeah, right. We used to come to lectures. He once told me to see how I did stuff, but yeah, Neil more than anyone else, and I admire that in this in in some ways admire this. Me too. More than anyone else, yeah, concertedly, single mindedly. Directed what became Neil. I mean, he he had a plan, yeah. and he and he and and he a conscious plan for doing exactly what he's done. And, and he said and, on the podcast and, that and and with yeah, and sometimes surprisingly, and some people might not like certain of the ways he's done that, but he 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 achieved exactly what he wanted to do. And I yeah, he thinks about these things very very carefully, very deeply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he never says something in public that he hasn't written down, which I find very admirable. Anyway, well, Lawrence, this has been people say never, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. I, I think he probably talks to his wife, you know, and no, no, doesn't no, write it down. I've gotten to say things on 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 either on stage or or in our podcast that he hasn't written. Down. <laughs> Very good, Lawrence. This has been a lot of fun. I'm going to run to office hours. It's been a wonderful conversation. Get the book in all editions, Kindle, in print, and in audio, where I hear Lawrence's mellifluous voice. Lawrence, thank you so much, thank and tune so into the Origins Project podcast. Donate to the Origins Foundation, and we'll see you next time uh, in person in San Diego. Yeah, we'll see you in San Diego. And thanks for that nice things you were about to say about the book when your camera went down. And you, and I hope you can repeat them some other time. We'll, we'll <laughs> edit it in. Yeah, I'll figure out a anyway, way. To thanks. I look forward to seeing being with you live. And thank you. It was, it's been a pleasure. And I knew it would be. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to part two of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible, featuring Lawrence Krauss and his new book, The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. And if you haven't already, don't miss part one. Keep in touch and inspired by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing by following, subscribing, and sharing. Remember, always be curious.